And turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to to Daniel chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 24 tonight. That's on page 690 and and 691 of your church Bibles, if you have those. Uh, It's also uh, in your service sheets, of course, uh, for your convenience, uh, if you prefer to, to follow along there. Uh, last week we started uh, our, our series in this, this Old Testament book, uh, a book that, that involves both uh, uh, narrative as well as, as prophecy. And, and uh, what, we, what we see in it is really uh, how, how the God of all creation, the, the one true God of the universe, uh, is present and active at, at, and at work in our world uh, despite what, what our outward circumstances uh, sometimes suggest. And so tonight we we'll begin chapter 2. Uh, Daniel and, and his, his three friends uh, have been taken into exile. Uh, so uh, 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 the Babylonians, uh, this ancient empire, invaded uh, their homeland. They, they sacked Jerusalem and they carried off the very best and brightest uh, from that land off to the king's court, the court of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and they did that in order to both humiliate the the people of Israel, but also to to keep them under under their their control by by taking some of the their best and brightest, some of the the people who would be the the leaders and politicians of their nation. And so we begin Daniel chapter two, beginning in verse one, and I'll I'll be reading through verse twenty four tonight, and this is God's word. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore show me the dream and its interpretation." They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me, till till the times change. Therefore tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter in Chaldean or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? 
Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what it is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To, to you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. I'm in the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forevermore. Now, I've never been to a, a fortune teller. I, I think it's a load of rubbish. But what, what Nebuchadnezzar does here is, would be like if, if you went to a fortune teller and you walk into the room and the, the fortune teller asks you for your, your name and your birthday and you turn around to them and say, well, you tell me. It would completely stump them. And while it, it might be kind of funny and it might embarrass them a bit because they claim to be sort of all-seeing these fortune tellers, it, it probably wouldn't put them off from being a fortune teller. I mean, that's, that's how they make their money, isn't it? Well, when it comes to, to Nebuchadnezzar, this, this, great, this great king, and his magicians and fortune tellers, the stakes get raised, don't they? Nebuchadnezzar's really worried about these dreams that he's, he's had, and, and it causes him, uh, whether on purpose or not, to expose the fragility of the wisdom of his culture that he was putting his faith in. What I want to suggest is that uh, this isn't uncommon. In fact, it's, it's the norm in any culture that refuses to acknowledge and trust in the one true God. At some point, that culture and the, the powerful in it will come up against the fragility of living and trusting in their own wisdom and human traditions. And in this account, what, that, that we, we really are only looking at the, the first half of this evening, we see the, the futility of human wisdom juxtaposed against the incredible grace of the Almighty God. And in it, we see not, that, that the, the only God worth serving is the only God who can explain our world. And he can explain it because he created it and because he is present and active in it. And apart from this God, we, we tend to vacillate between trusting in our, our own power and the, the deep insecurity that trusting in our old, own power ultimately leads us to. And that's what we see in Nebuchadnezzar tonight. And I think there's three things I want us to, to pull out of our, our passage this evening. First of all, the, the limit of worldly power. Secondly, the, the nature of the gods, small g, versus the nature of, of God. And finally, the extent of God's grace. So first of all, the limits of worldly power. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was, was the greatest and most powerful king of his day. The Babylonian Empire was feared throughout the, the known world at the time. His, his 
his hanging gardens are, are even remembered today as, and, and are known as one of the lost seven wonders of the world. Yet he was not a man who was free from fears and anxiety. We're told that, that he started having these, these dreams that were disturbing to him. And they got to be so troublesome that, that he sought the wise men of his day to, to explain them to him. The magicians and sorcerers, these were the, the experts in, in his culture and in his folklore and the wisdom literature of the Babylonian kingdom. And he calls these men in, and uh, as we said, he, he changes the rules of the game right in the middle of it, doesn't he? These men come before him, and, and he tells them that he's had a, a troubling dream. And so they ask him what, what he saw in this, this dream, and, and that's when he, he hits them with it, right? He says to them, well, no, you're going to tell me. You're going to tell me both what I dreamed and what the dreams mean. And you can imagine the looks exchanged between the magicians and sorcerers, right? You know, the, one of those, those looks that says, has, has the king lost his mind? So they, they argue with him, don't they? they? They try to reason with him. No, come on, just, it's okay, just, just tell us the dream, and we will tell you the interpretation. But Nebuchadnezzar is having none of it. He insists, you tell me the dream and its interpretation, and I'll, I'll richly reward you. But if you, if you fail to do so, and then, then I'll, I'll have you torn to pieces, and I'll have your houses pulled down and turned into rubble. Actually, what he says, it, it doesn't really come across in the English. What, what he actually says is, I'll have, your, I'll have you torn to pieces, and I'll, I'll make your, t- your, your homes into dunghills. That is, I'll, I'll tear your houses down and, and use them as a public toilet. This is the kind of thing we would expect from, from someone like, like maybe Donald Trump, Right? You know, the, we, we think they're a little bit unhinged. The reality is that Nebuchadnezzar hits, hits a wall of fear. And he needs serious and dependable answers. But, but he doesn't trust or believe that, that these magicians and enchanters can give him the truth. Either because they don't have it themselves or, or because they're out to get him. He's got a real problem. Either, either way, what, what we discover here is the limits and and deep insecurity of earthly power. We learn how fleeting earthly power really is. Nebuchadnezzar had everything, didn't he? He had incredible riches, and he was was, uh, in complete and unquestioned power. Yet all it took to disrupt that were were a few bad dreams. And the reason being that, that, uh, that at some point the most powerful person in our world had to come to grips with the fragility of even the greatest earthly power. And we see that even in our own day, that the most powerful people in our world at some point come to grips with the, the fragility of even the greatest earthly power. Now we'll get to the full interpretation of the dreams next week and look at, at that in detail. But for now, let's, let's just understand that what Nebuchadnezzar was, was dealing with was the fact that, that for all of his control, he was realizing he wasn't in control at all. His dreams were making him uneasy because he knew deep down that, that this power he had accumulated could be gone in the blink of an eye. It could be taken from him, or he could be taken from it. See, what Nebuchadnezzar illustrates is, is something that, that uh, I've certainly seen. And that is a, that some of the, the richest and, and most well-off people in the world feel the least secure. 
And most of us think if, if we could just get that, that little bit more, then we'll achieve security. But the ones that, that have that little bit more are still looking for that, that little bit more. If we could just get a, a little bit, bit more, we'll, we'll be secure, we'll have all we need. See, when you look at the, the nature of our world, it's, it's defined by insecurity and instability. Indeed, the people of, of Israel probably thought that they were really secure until the Babylonians turned up outside of Jerusalem. The people of, of Pompeii probably thought they were pretty in pretty good shape until the, the volcano they'd built their lives next to exploded. To give a more recent example, I know a, a lot of people who had, uh, who had beautiful homes and were really well off until the 2008 economic crisis happened and many of them lost the, the lives that they had spent so long building. Even more recently, and more locally, Chelsea FC were, were crowned champions of Europe a year ago and today they find themselves hoping to make payroll from one week to the next. I'll, I'll admit I, I, I enjoyed saying that last one. But earthly power is incredibly insecure, isn't it? It's incredibly insecure. What that insecurity leads to in, in Nebuchadnezzar, this great king, is a, is a spirit of hostility, particularly towards those he is looking to for answers. Now, why does he make such an obviously ridiculous request of these men? It's because he's not sure he can trust them. Because you see, when you, when you live for yourself, and when you gain power, and you think that that's what the world is all about, then at some point you realize that, that everyone else, all, all, all the not as powerful people, are living for themselves as well. And what that means is that they're almost certainly coming for you, aren't they? Nebuchadnezzar is coming to grips with the fact that, that everyone has their own motives and their own interests at heart. And the only way to, to maintain his power and control is through fear and tyranny. Just look at the last, the last straw in verses 11 and his reaction in verse 12. What do the, what do the wise men of his, of his uh, kingdom say to him? They say the thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And then Nebuchadnezzar's reaction, because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. See, often we look at at things like this, whether uh, in the ancient or, or modern world, and, and try to sort of laugh it off, don't we? It makes us feel better to think there that, that people like Nebuchadnezzar are just power-hungry, uh, uh, unhinged, uh, crazy people. But what's actually happening here is Nebuchadnezzar is coming to the logical conclusion of a worldview that says that all there is is what we have in what we see, and what we feel, and what we touch. And in the absence of God, in the absence of God, then, then all we have is power and control. And we must maintain that at all costs, even if it means killing our most trusted advisors. So what I want to suggest to us this evening is that, that Nutty Nebuchadnezzar is the enlightened one. He's the only one in the room thinking clearly. He's the one who's, who's, who's thinking most clearly of anybody. And it actually explains a lot about our world today. 
Have you ever noticed that the, the people arguing for, for love and acceptance and justice are, are often the most angry and nasty people that you'll, you'll come across either in person or online? Now, why is that? Well, the answer is because an activist is nothing more than, than someone trying to control their world. Even the most well-meaning of people, absent faith in, in the God of Scripture, will end up being abusive of whatever power they have. Why is it that, that this week uh, uh, people were rejoicing, at least some people were rejoicing, that Elon Musk bought Twitter while other people were, were literally weeping over the fact that he'd, he'd purchased this company? Well, it's because two sides, each with, with different agendas, were battling for power and influence. And one side won and the other lost. How is it that things that, that seemed so, so obvious a generation ago, like the, the definition of what a woman is, has, has become uh, almost impossible for, for some people who would, who would seek authority and power and political power in our own country? How, how is it that that's become almost impossible for them to define? Well, the answer is because when you, when you throw off truth, then you're left seeking answers from, from opinion polls or the loudest minority advocate in the room. And when that, becomes, when that becomes your truth, when that becomes the foundation for your values, then the answers become woefully inadequate. You end up in Babylon. Because the human heart is broken and sinful and we're, we're incapable of understanding ourselves and our world without the help of a higher power. And a vague higher power isn't sufficient, is it? That's what we're going to see in a moment in our second point. You see, the thing is, and the, the whole point of Daniel, is that in this great power struggle, ultimately there is only one winner. And what Daniel tells us is that the winner is going to be the God of the universe. And this is what we begin to see in our second point this evening. The nature of the God, small g, versus the nature of God the magicians actually have a clear grasp of the problem before them, don't they? And it isn't the fact that Nebuchadnezzar is, is asking something unprecedented. It's not that he's, he's changing the rules in the middle of the game. The magicians actually acknowledge that that isn't, isn't the problem. They say that the problem is that the, what, what he's asking is something that only God would know. But their gods don't dwell among them. Did you notice that? He said, our, our, the, the gods don't dwell among flesh. So they can't ask them for answers to the questions being put to them. See, what they're coming to grips with is the fact that, that gods like that, just a, a vague spiritual being, isn't helpful. They're saying to the king that, that our spirituality is actually useless to us. And so we're on our own to try and understand our world. And that's not a good place to be when faced with an existential crisis, is it? But that's exactly where our world is. All the wisdom we can muster, all the wisdom of history and science, at the end of the day, cannot account for our humanity. It cannot explain why we are here, what the purpose of it all, what the purpose of it all is, and what comes next, if anything. It cannot comfort us when life brings us to the logical and practical conclusion of all our philosophy. At some point, our gods, small g, are insufficient to help us. So the king sends out his servants to, to gather every last useless, sycophantic magician and wise man in the kingdom. 
so that he can have them put to death and have their ter- homes turned into, into toilets. Which, by the way, is not that bad for if you're, you don't like paying 20p at the station, right? I mean, someone wins. Anyway, you, you get the impression almost that the, that the magicians are resigned to their fate, aren't they? That they know that, that this is, is what can happen in a world without a, a greater god than the, the gods they know. Then the king's men come to, to Daniel, uh, and I suppose that they, they must have asked politely, didn't they? Uh, would you mind coming with us, please? We, we need to rip you to pieces and turn your, your house into a dunghill. And Daniel says to them, That's, uh, well, what's, what's the hurry? Why is it so urgent? Why is the king uh, so anxious? And he, he goes to the king and he asks for a bit more time, doesn't he? And then Daniel does the one thing that no one else in all of Babylon could do. And he goes and he asks his, his uh, three fellow exiles, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, to join him in it. And so the four of them do the one thing that no one else in Babylon seems able to do. They pray to the God of heaven. And the contrast between the, the small g gods and the, uh, of the Babylonians and the, the God of Daniel couldn't be more stark, could it? Their gods were useless in distance, and were only there in order to, to acknowledge some higher power that they couldn't explain. And these gods, these, these gods of the Babylonians were utterly unreachable, and they were completely silent. But the God of Daniel, he's a proper God, isn't he? The God of Daniel is a God who can be sought and known and who can, can answer his people in their hour of need. He's no less powerful than, than the gods of Babylon. In fact, he's, he's an immensely greater and more powerful precisely because he is above all while being knowable by his people. He is present and active in our world and he draws near to his people in their time of need. We hear that, hear that very clearly, not just in the fact of, of the, the vis- that the vision is revealed to Daniel, but also in the words of Daniel. This, this short song of praise that, that, that Daniel writes here. Look back at, at verses 19 through 23. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what it is, what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known, to, made known to us the king's matter. It's a remarkable contrast, isn't it? This prayer to that of Nebuchadnezzar and his magicians. Nebuchadnezzar wants to, to cling to power, but Daniel actually acknowledges that God alone causes kings to rise and to fall, that their power is not in their hands. The magicians say that, that the gods are, are too distant to, to be a help in the mysteries of our world. But Daniel says the the true God reveals the deep mysteries and he alone imparts wisdom. And the question this is meant to leave us with is is which God do you really want to follow? Do you want the the small g gods of this world who are are powerless to help you either in in life or in death? And so they leave you 
fighting tooth and nail to grab whatever you can and leave you fighting until your dying day to hold on to whatever you grab? Or do you want the God who, despite your outward circumstances, is, is in control of all things, and he offers you, he offers you peace for eternity because it'll be an eternity with him. You see, the beauty of our, our great God, the God of heaven and earth, is that he is a God who reaches into our world and offers us grace and peace. In our third point this evening, we get, we get a glimpse of, of just the extent of, of God's grace. We get a picture of just how, how, how strong that is. Look back at verse 24 for a moment. It says that, that Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Now we'll look at that next week, what, what actually the king both dreamed and, and the interpretation of it. But it's absolutely critical that we understand from here just, just how strong the grace of God is. His grace leaves an indelible mark, just not, not just on Daniel, but on the culture and indeed the whole world. When Daniel goes to Arioch, he doesn't say to him, don't kill me and my three friends, we, we have the answer. Rather, he, he ties his fate to that of the, the, the pagan magicians. He, he says, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. He ties his fate with theirs. God is, God is saving Daniel. And in saving Daniel, he saves these, these pagan men as well. And in the chapters that follow, in the weeks ahead, we're going to see how, how these men, uh, how, how uh, this, this grace appears to be squandered by these men. And that these men use their, their power to, to try and destroy Daniel and, and his fellow exiles, these men of God. But that isn't the end of the story. So we begin to just get a very small glimpse of the extent of God's grace. One of the things that, that Dumbledore says in the, the Harry Potter books is that magic always leaves a mark. There's something about magic that, that always leaves a mark. It, it lingers and it never quite fully disappears. If you've ever been to a place where, where there's been magic, the marks will remain. That's a beautiful thought, isn't it? And the truth is the same can be said about the grace of God. That God's grace is so much more powerful than we realize, even when it first appears to not take root. That's the beauty of it. And that's the, that's the wonder of it. That's why God's grace marks all of human history. We can never underestimate the power of the, the grace of our great God. You see, 600 years after, after these events, these events that, that are recorded here in Daniel, three men would be searching the, the night sky in the east, around where Babylon once was. And they would be looking up at the night sky, and they would, they would notice a new star shining. And they would search the ancient wisdom of their, their culture Things passed down through the ages from, from kingdoms, including Babylon. And they would find a prophecy. And it may have been muddled and, and misunderstood, but it, it would set them on a journey to find the Christ born in Bethlehem. 600 years. And the, the influence of, of 
exiles like Daniel, exiles that were, were following and trusting in the, the God of their of the, the, the God of creation. Six hundred years for three men to find the true king, to find the one king who can bring meaning and purpose and order and salvation to this world that we inhabit. And here we sit two thousand years later, after the journey of those three men. And our world still feels very chaotic. It can feel very uncertain. And it can often feel very, very fragile. Yet the grace lingers. And it even grows because, because our world has once seen its king walk upon it in the person of Christ Jesus. Our world once saw its God dwell within it. He's not the God of Babylon. He, he drew near to us. And dwelt with us. And the hope that Daniel offers us and the hope that, that Christ offers us in uncertain times is that, that the, the great God of heaven, the king of all creation, will draw near to us once again for eternity. And until that day, his grace will linger. And his people will be protected. And will know his love and his mercy to us by faith. And that is our great comfort and hope. And that is what we see in the table before us this evening. And so as we as we turn to this table, let us let us pray.